0: Okay. Can you hear me now? Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. I'm sorry about it. that. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I did this last time too. Um, so yeah. Hello everyone. My name is Han and, uh, to kind of piggyback on what the Lee said, um, I'm not pastor Paul. And, uh, and for those of you who are new to the church, um, uh, yes, I, I highly recommend that you go to our website force.church and you'll see all the sermons. Um, you know, pastor Paul, we just uh, finished this, uh, a great series on, on the life of David. And, uh, and so I have the privilege of just helping him to have a little bit of a break and to fill in the gap between his uh, preaching schedule. So um, here we go. So um, the topic of the message today is uh, I, I titled it Graduating from the School of Jesus. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why it's, I said that, uh, why, why my mind was drawn to this. First is the fact that since the beginning of the year, um, Pastor Paul has been leading uh, us in a lot of studies related around the theme of being a disciple. As you guys know, disciple just in Greek means just a student. And so we've, you know, we've been in the school of Jesus uh, through the teaching of Pastor Paul, and and also for again for those of you who are new to the church, uh, we have this uh, this great uh, system called um, the Great Shep- uh, the Good Shepherd College, and we have a series of courses that uh, Pastor Paul always advertises as being better than seminary, and and as one of the few people in our church who you know who've gone to seminary, I can attest that they are better than seminary, and it's free on top of that. So I highly encourage you guys to uh, continue. Uh, to to sign up for th- for these classes and to learn uh, from from Jesus and from scriptures, but uh, but as you can see, my topic is not about being in the school of Jesus or necessarily discipleship. But I was drawn to this theme of graduation. Why? Because uh, well, for one thing, my son uh, Noah is a senior, and uh, and a couple of the boys in our church just graduated, Jeremy and, and Han. And uh, and not only that, we've had several other people that are graduating from graduate schools, that are graduating from college. And I remember a few weeks ago, um, during one of our break, break group sessions, I got to meet Chris, Chris Young, and I was just amazed that uh, he was still a student in Houston, but, you know, because of the corona, uh, because of COVID-19, he um, actually, you know, was, uh, I think he said he was couch surfing in Houston, and, and thankfully, he had a job offer, and uh, I, I believe he's here today, and I believe he's in Dallas now. And when I thought about that, that kind of amazed me, because I thought, you know, uh, in this COVID, this pandemic, you know, everything stopped, right? I didn't realize that people are still graduating from college, and when they graduate, they actually move to a new place. And this is a typical pattern, right? When you graduate from high school, uh, uh, almost, you know, many people will leave their town, their state, and they pursue their education in a different place. And, and the same thing, if you graduate from college, the expected thing to do is not to continue to be you know, in school, but to move to a place uh, and to begin to, you know, quote unquote, enter into the workforce. And as I thought about that, I realized, you know, I think one of the tendencies that we have as Christians is that, yes, we are lifelong learners of Jesus, we'll always be a disciple of Jesus, even in heaven. But there comes a time when we really should consider what it means to graduate from the school of Jesus. And what does that graduation look like? And, uh, and the passage uh, that we're going to be reading today, actually, in my mind, is the kind of the graduation class. I'm sorry, the graduation um, ceremony that Jesus does with the disciples. And if you notice, uh, if you look at all four Gospels, you know, not, uh, every one of them ends with some sort of what I would call a graduation or what the theologians typically call commissioning, where the disciples are sent out. It doesn't end with the life of Jesus. It continues on to uh, new things, new places, and new mission. And that's what I uh, wanted to bring your attention to today. So, without further ado, I'm going to just jump in and read. Uh, whoops, sorry. I'm going to read uh, from this passage in John. And uh, this is, uh, happens right after Jesus' resurrection on the same day, so the same evening. He says, On the evening of the first day of the week, Sunday, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you were, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I wish uh, I should have asked Sean to just... Draw a picture of Jesus blowing on the disciples, but I don't have that. But instead, thank you, Sean. I see you. Okay, um, I'm just going to give you kind of a quick, uh, kind of a quick outline of, of to help us navigate through this passage. What we see, here, what we see here is this: that Jesus continues his mission through his disciples by one, gracing them with his peace; second, sending them out with his purpose; and third. Empowering them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I gotta admit, as I was studying this passage, the first part of Jesus continuing His mission was kind of, you know, like counterintuitive, because I, I immediately, when I thought about that, I, I thought about the last thing Jesus said on the cross when He says, "It is finished. It is finished." Now, um, let me go back to the passage, is John chapter fifteen. Uh, John records, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine, vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge in a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, when we just read this casually, we think, okay, what does he mean by it is finished? Well, it's actually a single term in Greek, and, uh, and it doesn't mean that Jesus' life on the earth is finished, although, I mean, that, that's actually, that's not true, right? Because he'll be resurrected. It doesn't mean that his suffering, necessarily his suffering on the cross is finished, although that is also true. When Jesus said, it is finished, what he, what he said was actually a very interesting word. It's a word that doesn't occur any other time in the New Testament. And in fact, it's a word that's actually a common word in Greek language. It's a word that they use to signify that a, that an invoice or a bill, a debt, has been paid in full. It's an accounting term. Now, for those of you who are in uh, in a small business, or maybe those of you who are still students, could you just imagine the day when uh, instead of the monthly bill from uh from your uh, from from the uh, the student loans, you actually get a final statement that says paid in full. It's done, right, right. Or those of you who have these you know, 30-year mortgages, oh my goodness, the, the joy when, when it is finished and done. right? There's nothing like that. And that is what Jesus said. When he said, I love this quote from uh, this person named uh, Dave Jenkins. He said, when Jesus said it is finished, he's saying not only does he take away man's sin, but now he removes it as far as the east is to the west. it is finished, done, signed, and sealed because of the blood of Jesus. We know that those of us who grew up in the church, and there's no better feeling than knowing that on the cross, Jesus did pay it all. That all my sins, all the shameful things that nobody knows except me and God, that God considered those and saw my guilt and said, it is finished. I consider you fully forgiven of all your sins because Jesus suffered on the cross for my sake. It is the most astounding truth of Christianity that is found nowhere else. That because of Jesus, because of someone else who became my substitute, all of our debts are finished and it is done forever. I mean, I can literally go and do something stupid and crazy and sinful and I do time to time. And as hard as it is to believe, the truth of the scripture says that, that I'm free. I'm free because Jesus did pay it off. So in what sense then uh, can we talk about Jesus uh, not finishing or continuing his work? We'll get to that, okay? But before we get to that, I want to uh, get to the first point, which is the reason why Jesus says, peace be with you. And he says it actually twice in this passage. And in fact, if you look at the parallel passage and and, and Luke, he also says, peace be with you. In fact, the only times that, again, that Jesus specifically uses his greeting, peace be with you, are those three times after the resurrection. Now, what does that have to do? Why is it such a big deal? Well, first of all, uh, when Jesus says this again three times, he's emphasizing the fact that he's actually fulfilling one of the last promises that he gave to the disciples. Uh, In his final time with the disciples, he says in John chapter 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, when Jesus says peace be with you in Hebrew, that will be uh, shalom Aleichem. Some of you who've uh, been around Muslims, this is the common Muslim greeting greeting as well. Salam alaikum It just literally means peace upon you. But it isn't just a, a simple greeting Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that because his work on the cross is completed and finished, the end result of what he's done for us is that we can truly have shalom. We can have peace. You know, what is this peace? Again, I somebody... Mentioned it as, uh, described it as, as, shalom as the, the things, uh, uh, the, the way that things ought to be, right? We live in a broken world. Ever since the first, uh, the second chapter of Genesis, all the way to the present day, when you pick up any newspaper, read, just, just open your ears and open your eyes, you see that, world, that, that the world we live in does not have peace. And no matter what the politicians will promise us between now and then, now in November, we know. That lasting peace and true peace and true peace that completely satisfy our soul will never, ever, ever happen in this world. And don't listen to these hucksters, political and others, self, you know, gurus or whatever is out there. No one can deliver the peace that only Jesus says he'll deliver. Because he says here, as you notice, he says, my peace I give you. And this again, he says, it is a peace that you may have in me, he says. It's a very personal uh, peace. And again, the only way that we can enjoy this peace is in Jesus, through Jesus. Because it is only possible through this intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this may, I hope this doesn't, oh, wow, electricity ran out. Okay, I hope this doesn't sound too, um, uh, just a second, let me just step out, motion emotions. Sorry, I'm in a co-working space here and then the motion detector, you know, anyway. So the only uh, uh, reason, again, why Jesus can declare to the disciples who were gathered in the room afraid and fearful is that he genuinely brings this peace with him because of his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, that's one of the central claims of Christianity that even though, yes, Christians, we will experience trouble as Jesus says, you know, All of us will experience fear and troubles and suffering. But the one thing that Jesus does promise us in this world and beyond is a sense of peace. You know, every time I think about this, I think about my uncle, um, Sarah, who we pray for every day, um, every week, and many of you every day. Uh, Her father is my uncle, my younger uncle. And uh, he's not only my uncle, he was one of my first spiritual mentors. He's a pastor. And I remember uh, in many conversations I had with him, he would always say to me, Han, Jesus only promised us troubles in this world and peace. That's it. Anybody who claims anything else, beware of, of what they're saying. Any of these prosperity gospels, people who, whose books are bestsellers, who, who, who claim to have the largest churches in America, and who promises a bunch of other stuff, they're not preaching from the scriptures. They're contradicting what Jesus says. We will have trouble. But what we'll have in the midst of the troubles is peace, and you know, um and again, some you guys, some of you guys know the situation uh, with my cousin, uh, my my uncle's youngest daughter. You know, uh, back in November, or December of this year, had this massive stroke, completely unexpected, and uh, we feared losing her life, and we thank the Lord that miraculously survived against what the doctors were saying. But it's been a long, slow haul, and she's beginning to learn how to walk again, use her left leg, I mean, I'm sorry, right leg. She hasn't really fully recovered, she hasn't recovered her right arm. She's just beginning to recover her speech, little by little. The last time I visited her, her dad and mom are so proud because she could now write few of the letters of the alphabet in capital letters. This is my little cousin, who by far is the smartest kid in our entire family, who was headed towards uh, Research, uh, and uh, in, in, it was doing uh, neuroscience, started doing neuroscience research, it just doesn't make any sense. And for my uncle and my aunt, seeing them, you know, they just they had just retired after a long life of, you know, being immigrants, working hard, being a pastor, pastor's wife, and just when they got to a point where they could con- contemplate retirement of their choice, this happened, and now they're seven taking care of their daughter it is incredibly difficult and hard. But every time I visit them, yes, I see their frustrations, I see their worries, but at the same time, I see something else. And that's the truth of what Jesus said here, that I see peace in their hearts and joy in the midst of the most difficult times. I tell you, my brothers and sisters, that is something genuine that we can all cling on to experience. But there is a condition to that. That peace is only available for those who've embraced what Jesus has done on the cross. You know, um, as a little bit of a side note, if you notice that the song that we sing, Grace and Peace, the first time I heard it, it just, the the pairing of the words kind of threw me off. And and then I realized over time, actually, every one of Paul's letters begin with these same combination of words, grace and peace. Uh, here's just one example in Romans 1 7, I'll again repeated in his last letter of Philemon grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only uh, Paul, but look at Peter, For in 1st 2nd Peter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, Revelation, John says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Slightly different words, but the meaning is the same. It is grace before peace. And there's a huge significance to that. What, uh, what we learn from here is that, is that this ultimate peace or shalom is a result of God's grace, not our striving. No matter how much we try to achieve peace on our own, it cannot, it's something that we cannot achieve. It is, only thing, it, it, is, it is only achievable when we, like children, by faith, receive what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us. Without gra- receiving of this grace, there is no peace. And for those of you who maybe in this time of COVID are assailed by worries and concerns that you cannot deny, and no matter what you do, there is this underlying sense of turmoil. May I suggest that your solution is not anything that the world can give. It's not a COVID, COVID uh, vaccine, it's not even uh, having the right person being elected as the, as the leader of our country. That the only way, may I humbly suggest, that we can have this lasting peace is by turning to Jesus and receiving by faith what he won for us when he cried out, it is finished on the cross. So this is what he promises the disciples. And he knows that, they're, as he said in another place, he's sending them out like sheep among wolves. They're going to encounter all kinds of turmoil. But the one thing that we see again and again and again is this peace that Jesus has promised. Now, the second fact of, uh, in, in this graduation ceremony is this idea of continuation when he says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Again, this is a simple statement, but it's truly astounding when you consider what, this is, what Jesus is talking about. You know, uh, John 1 begins with some of his highest statements in, 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 in theology. It begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word and the word was with God, and the word was God. By verse 12, we have this astounding fact that this word who was with God in the beginning, through whom all creation was created, became flesh, became like you and me, and made his dwelling among us. This is what he meant for Jesus to be sent. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it signals his incredible privilege as, as God, as God. But who with the purpose, purpose, of being able to cry out at finished, finish, of paying our uh, sins on the cross, uh, leaves all of that. And for that very specific mission comes to the earth. And of course, within it is this, uh, as we know, the great passion or the suffering that he went through in order to achieve his purpose. And when he says, as the father has sent me, and he says, I am sending you, there's two things that are going on. First of all, he's putting himself in the very place of the father who sent him. It tells us who Jesus Christ is once again. And second, he's putting us in the very same position that he's in, which is the dearly beloved who for the purpose of Jesus, of God the Father, must be sent out, must be incarnated into this world of turmoil and trouble and sin. So it is both a a statement of privilege for Jesus Christ, but of our own privilege And it also gives us a clear sense of purpose in our lives. Again, anybody who's still wondering as a Christian, what is my purpose in my life? Consider what Jesus says here. Our purpose is to be sent, even as Jesus was sent to this world. And everything that entails applies to us. And finally, we know by extension also that the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, or like the movie The Passion of Christ, That isn't just something that just happened to Jesus. That we are also privileged as his followers, as Jesus himself says in John, to experience some of the very kinds of passions, sufferings that he also endured. And that too also is our glory. And it is something that is inevitable as we pursue the purpose for which he sends us into this violent world. Now, Peter, uh, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 2, um, this is how uh, Paul puts this, this uh, what it means to be sent for Jesus and for us. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, notice that this statement begins with Jesus' identity. He is the very nature of God. But rather than embracing his privilege, he actually embraces his privilege, his right. Only God can make, him, make himself so humble as to become a human being and die as a criminal. So he fully practices his privilege as God. And, 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 uh, and, and as an obedient child of God, he humbles himself. He abandons his pride. He abandons his self-interest so that he could obey God and so that he could serve us, even to the point of suffering and death. And notice this radical statement that, uh, that uh, uh, Paul makes. This isn't just a description of Jesus. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This isn't even just for super apostles like him. This is for every believer, every disciple, every follower of Jesus, anyone who truly is a Christian. We're called to the very same embracing of our privilege to become servants, to lose our of interest and pride, to take upon the cross and to obey, even to the point of suffering and death. That is the privilege that we have as Christians because the world cannot do this. Nobody apart from genuine children of God can do what Paul is describing here, and so our work, conti- so Jesus's work, continues. And thank God we don't have to go to the cross. We we do take up the cross, but we don't have to go to the cross because it is finished. The propitiation, prop- what theologians call it, is finished. But what remains is, as somebody put it, the propagation of this message, the realization. For people who have yet to hear this message and who have yet to embrace this grace from God that frees them and gives gives them this peace. Um, And that is the work that must continue. So Jesus' ministry brings us sinners into this relationship um, uh, uh, so that uh, the relationship that he has with the disciples will continue to be multiplied to more and more people. We are his ambassadors. So John, uh, Jesus says in John 13, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. That's an amazing statement. When people accept us, they're accepting Jesus. When we go in the message and in the name of Jesus into their lives, whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. It's the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father we have with Jesus. Righteous Father, he prays in his final prayer to God, he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus' ministry of continuing to make God known, this heart of God who loves us who pursues sinners, who would send his son to die on the cross, his most precious son, continues to make himself known. Now through those who embrace this message and become his messengers. Um, Again, Paul gives us a very clear statement of this. He says, he says, uh, uh, um, uh, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the continuation part. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us uh, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's who we are. Before we are doctors and lawyers and teachers and engineers and housewives and whatever, students, we are Christ's ambassadors. We implore you. Uh, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in, time, in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus' ministry continues through the disciples. Um, in, again, in John 14, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, he says. And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to... To the Father. Now we understand that by greater things he means that, that that we will be able to reach the people that he never reached. He was physically bound by the geography of his time in Galilee and Judea and Samaria. But us as disciples are now free to roam over all over the world and be able to do even greater things, bringing exposing more people to the truth of Jesus Christ and seeing more people come to Christ than Jesus ever did in his lifetime. But this is possible, not because of, of because of what we have or who we are, because of this last thing that Jesus says when He says, "Because of, because I am going to the Father," what do you, why did He say that? Well, what well, we know in uh, in other passages that He says when He goes to the Father, He will send the Holy Spirit, and we see this continuing history of unfolding of what Jesus does in the Book of Acts. Book of Acts begins. Uh, uh, by Luke saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do, meaning the Gospels, again, the works of Jesus, ministry of Jesus does not end in the Gospels, but it actually is just a beginning because his ministry will continue on through the disciples, as we see in the book of Acts, and in fact, through throughout history unto this very day. Um, and we see this unfold, especially in, in Acts chapter 8, on that day, this is right at the day of when the when, uh, first Christian martyr, when Stephen was martyred. He said, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wh- wherever they went the first real ambassadors of Jesus who took the message through the known world of of the Greco-Roman empire were refugees. And these weren't the super apostles, these were just regular disciples of Jesus in lowercase, who totally embraced the message of Jesus and empowered by the spirit. Everywhere that they went to, they shared the good news. Even though personally, their lives were a mess, they lost everything, even their family members. And yet, wherever they went, they, they, they um, continue somehow to share this incredible peace that they had in the midst of the severest persecutions. You know, I find this to be true in my own personal life and, and people around me that the people who are the best amb- ambassadors of Christ are people who have gone through and are experiencing some of the most difficult dif- difficulties. We, in small ways, are experiencing the passions of Christ. And in doing so, will become his his ambassadors. If Christ was so broken, his ambassadors must also be people who are humbled and broken by life, yet find hope and faith in God and God alone. Going back to the passage, the third point, he says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you, second time, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And, And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you, forget, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The word that you use here, breathe on them, it's not just a normal word. Again, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And if you go back to the Old Testament, we realize that this is Greek. So if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word breathe is only actually used twice. And they're both very significant and gives us insight to what's happening here. First of all, The first time this word is used is in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 7. I use the King James here because it's actually more clear. He says, And the Lord God formed man, in Hebrew, ha-adam, the man, of the dust of the ground, and ha-adama, ground, or Adam, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. What the word breath here signifies is the work of God, the work of the Spirit, in taking just dust. Just ground, just dirt, and miraculously making him into a living being, a living soul. Now, as an aside, for those of you, and I think it's legitimate, um, when, whether you hold on to you know, a seven-day creation and young Earth theory, and what, or whether you embrace uh, uh, some of the scientific evidence and embrace evolution, the amazing thing here is that whether you're just a dust and ground, or whether you're just DNA of a human flesh. What makes human beings human beings is the breath of God. And it is this work of God breathing into Adam that makes him a living soul and an image of God. And this is what Jesus is pointing to. When he re- reenacts this, I think almost as a parable, he breathed on them. What he's reminding them is that he's creating a new creation, he's doing something new. And even as a monkey or, 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 or a, or a um, or, or dust or is just that. That when you add the birth of God into us, we become this entire different category of being. We become one who has an intimate relationship with God. We become truly the image of God. And that's what Jesus is signifying here. The second time that it's used is actually in the Ezekiel uh, narrative the, uh, the value of the dry bones. And let uh, I me, mean, I'm running out of time. If you look at Ezekiel 37, you'll see. That, uh, that God takes uh, uh, the prophet to a, a valley of dry bones. And then he, and then he commands him to say, uh, and, and he says, "Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the uh, Lord, Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And so he tells Ezekiel, not God himself, he says, he commands Ezekiel to do this. And so Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together and, and bone to bone. Uh, indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from, uh, come from the four winds O breath and breathe. Same word again on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up up upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these are the bones. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Really quickly, two points. First of all, notice that in Genesis, God is the one who breathes. But here, God commands his prophet to breathe. And that's what he does. Notice the continuation of what God does, but he puts it into his disciple, his prophet. And, and notice also that what comes alive here is not just the individual, but it's the entire nation of Israel. And, 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 and the fulfillment of this is what happens in John 20 that we're reading and what we see in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Acts. It means that the new thing that is being created again is not just physical uh, 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 Israel. It is the church. It is Israel, composed of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And the means by which that God will bring this new humanity into place is through His people, who bear His spirit, who will obey Him, and who will dare to proclaim this message, this life-giving message. It's an incredible thought that we are the mediators of this incredible power of God to to make things new and to bring things alive. My brothers and sisters, have confidence. No matter where you go and however broken the situation may be, whether it is physical illness, relations that are just completely messed up, even households and families that are just wrecked by interpersonal conflicts, have confidence. That as we obey the Lord and enter into that situation and breathe out the word of God in their lives, there is power. There is power in those words. And we are witnesses of that because that's what we have experienced in our lives as well. Now, uh, again, you'll see this in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to skip these. Um, now, I'm going to. There's this kind of a odd um, phrasing. He says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It almost, if you just, if that's all you read without context, you think, Whoa, wait a minute. As we go out, if, if you just, you know, like like a priest in a Catholic church, if they confess their sins to us, we can forgive them. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. If you look at the uh, the, the parallel passage in, in Luke 24, which describes the same, same thing, Luke points out another explanation that Jesus gives. He says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So what Jesus means is that as they receive the Spirit, that they will proclaim the message of repentance for the forgiveness of the sins. They they will be sharing this message wherever they go. But it's interesting why Jesus put it in terms of forgiveness. And the more we think about it, it makes perfect sense. Here's why. Let me just, uh, I'll, I'll be brief here. The essence of Christian life. I used to think that the essence of Christian life is is love, right? God is love. We love God. We love each other. I think there's something even more foundational than love. Because we live in a broken world. And that's something that is more foundational is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. You see, how do I experience God's ultimate love? What he offers me is forgiveness that repairs our relationship. And, and, and what it doesn't mean for me to love, for example, my wife, my children, my parents, my co-workers. Love is impossible unless we're willing to be forgiven and we're willing to forgive those who hurt us. You know, the obstacle, the greatest obstacle in the world to love and peace is unforgiveness and the inability to forgive. Look at what's happening in our world today. It is not Policies, it is not money, it is not protests that's going to solve solve these fundamentally broken relationships. It is only when we embrace this forgiveness of God. And, 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 and the scripture is clear: only those who are, who are forgiven much can also forgive. I think about you know the, the story, the well-known story of the of the sinful woman who comes to unknown Jesus at, at Simon the Pharisee's house. Jesus says that. Because she's been forgiven much, because she's been forgiven much, she loves. You see, love springs out of forgiveness, of both experiencing forgiveness and being able to forgive other people. That's what love is. Love of God is rooted in forgiveness. I know that God loves me because he forgave me. There is no greater sign of love. You know, and I'll be be honest. I've been a Christian now for 32 years. This forgiveness doesn't happen instantly. I did. At the beginning of my Christian, I felt instantly forgiven. And yes, but there are still times I still, my my guilty conscience and my condemnations rise up and I have to fight against it with the gospel and cling on to the forgiveness and the unconditional God offers me. That's a slow process. But even slower is the process of forgiving. And I don't have time again, but I think as you go into house churches and we listen to each other's story, one of the common themes you'll see is forgiveness being able to forgive those people. In fact, I would say that one of the true signs that we have truly have come to know Jesus Christ and are born again is that we can let go of some of the most difficult things and replace it with forgiveness. If you're trapped in just dwelling upon and thinking about the sins that have been done against you by those who have hurt you, I pray again, may I say, the only solution out of that hell is to turn to Jesus, recognizing your your own sins against him. And as you experience his radical forgiveness, the Lord will give you the power to radically forgive those. And only then, only when you have forgiven others, can you now go and proclaim this good news. It's not a theoretical knowledge. Unless you've been forgiven, unless you are forgiving, you cannot be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. None of us can be. You know, if you wonder, like, why do I not have passion for the lost people? Why do I not really, I'm not excited about sharing the gospel. May I suggest humbly that you examine your hearts and look for those roots of bitterness and unforgiveness in your own heart and ask God to wipe that out with the greater understanding and depth of, G- of the love of God for you, that you may be freed of that unforgiveness and be released and in and released, release the part of the spirit within you to be able to be his messengers of peace. Uh, how does the Holy Spirit work? Again, really quickly. First of all, the Holy Spirit directs disciples' footsteps. Again, I go back to the original analogy that I had. You know, we cannot be just a disciple of Jesus and just remain a disciple or student. We've got to let our feet go to the places where Jesus sends us. Um, Even Jesus, you know, we we see in Luke chapter four, Jesus, when he was full of the Holy Spirit, left the the Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. And all throughout the life of Jesus, we see Jesus being um, led by the Holy Spirit to the places that he doesn't necessarily want to go. Same thing happens to Paul in Acts chapter 16. He wanted to further go into Asia Minor. The Holy Spirit says no, directs his footsteps towards, towards, uh, towards Europe, to Macedonia. Um, the second thing that, that God does is uh, I'm, before I go there again, just I, I, I encourage you to think about this. And and the question is, am I really allowing God, the Spirit, to direct my footsteps? How do I make decisions about what neighborhood that I live in, what schools that I go to, what jobs that I choose?
1: Right. Is the Holy
0: Spirit one who's driving me to those places, or am I driving it? For like a lot of us, you're already you are in the neighborhood and the job that you're in. The the second step is this. We are where we are, but that doesn't mean that God can't use us. The second step is, who is the Lord directing my footsteps towards? Which person in my job, in my neighborhood, in my relationships? And start from there. Go into their lives with the intention of being used by the Spirit. It doesn't matter how you got there, what matters is what you do. But the next time you have a big move, I pray that we are a church of people who who are guided in their directions in their, regarding their career and education and, 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 and children and, and, and family life, not based on what the statistics say or what the world says, but driven by the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus and Paul were driven by the Holy Spirit. The second thing that uh, the Holy Spirit does is that he jogs the disciples' memory. He says, all these I've spoken while i still with you. But, uh, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father was uh, sending my name, will teach you all things. And will remind you of everything that I've said to you. The big point is this: the Holy Spirit doesn't give us something new. He reminds the disciples what they've already known, and this is again a huge point. This is why we have sermons and Bible studies and and Good Shepherd College. The Holy Spirit needs material in our brain that He brings to our memory. And if I had time, I'll give you. I can tell you many times when the Holy Spirit takes what I literally what I read that morning and applies it and gives me a perfect usage of that time and time again in fact i look back there are many times i try to add my own it's the effect is not good but the whole the things that the holy spirit brings to my mind are the very things that the spirit uses to 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 help people um third uh the holy spirit is the one who actually convinces sinners of their need for savior meaning we don't have to try to argue with people. We don't have to try to convince them. It is the work of the Spirit. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That's why we Christians should never judge, never condemn, and we shouldn't even argue with people, right? That's the work of the Spirit. We share the good news and and trust that the Holy Spirit will convince them, will prove them that they're wrong, and will ultimately bring them to faith. Finally, What keeps the disciples going against all these opposition and troubles is the Holy Spirit. Uh, He gives us the ability and fruitfulness. He's the one who gives us boldness. He's the one who gives us assurance and confidence when we feel not good enough or we can't do this. He's the one who renews us and continually refreshes us. All of this is the work of the Spirit. So, you guys probably can guess where we're going to end up at. Yeah, directing our lives. How do we direct our lives to? what we call the VIPs in our church, the the lost people among our midst, that we feel like it is our passion and our calling as a church and as house church and as individuals to reach out towards How do we do this? May I just a couple of simple points. First of all, notice that VIPs must become very important priority. You cannot reach out to VIPs unless they, uh, I mean, VIPs, very important people. We indicate that they are VIPs by the priority that we give to them. Drop everything. When you have a chance to minister to somebody who doesn't know Christ and and share the good news or just love them and bring this message of peace and forgiveness, drop everything. Whatever whatever priorities that you have, they've got to become your priority. Second, VIPs are often insignificant people. This is the hard thing. The people that God places in us that he wants to minister to are people that many times you don't even notice, you know. Um, and again, I see this over and over again that I missed being used of God because these people are insignificant in some ways. Um, third, start with those who are near to you. Don't have to you know, like, go to halfway around the world to look for VIPs. Start with exactly where you are. It could be your children, it could be your spouse, it could be your boyfriend, girlfriend, it could be your uh, coworkers, It could be the guy that you uh, or lady like in my case who, who, that I get a haircut from every three, four weeks. Look at the people near you and ask a simple question. God, do you want me to reach out to them? Then God, I don't know what to do, but you lead the way and I will follow. You provide the opportunity. You do the convincing. In fact, I don't even know what to say, God. You give me the words and I'll just show up and you do the rest. Here's a final point. Those people who are near to you that you're reaching out to, they must become dear to you they must become dear to you. You know, we've got this uh, uh, one lady in our house church. It just, I, I believe it is part of a gifting. Every week, as she shares her prayer request, she brings somebody new that she encounters, encounters during, her, during her work week. And, and the, every person that she talks about, I'm sure they're not angels, but all she can do is just reach out to them with compassion, wanting to pray for them, and wanting them to come to know Jesus Christ. Why? Because they became near, uh, not only near, they became dear to her. And that is because of the impact of the spirit in her life and the forgiveness that she clings to each day. If you have a chance, please read uh, Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. This is what I call the Thessalonian model. Um, And we looked at Acts chapter 2 as kind of the house church model and the ideal of what it means for us to be community. Let me just read this. Okay. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel. Amen. We dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men and women, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, the good news. We're not trying to please men, but God test our hearts you know we never use flattery nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed god is our witness we were not looking for praise from men uh not from you or anyone else as apostles now here the word is as those who are sent out notice that paul is not talking about him with a capital a he's talking about silas and timothy regular christians like him are who recognize that they're being sent by jesus for this purpose As, as those who are sent by jesus We could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you. Like a mother caring for her little children, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Until our VIPs become so dear to us like this, we will not be able to fully unleash the power of the Spirit in their lives. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God. Parents, read this carefully with your children who are your VIPs who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, mere men like us, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work, work in you who believe. May Forrest become a Thessalonian church. May our house churches become place where VIPs become important to us and dear and and, and, and experience the peace that only God can give. Let's pray.